You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you're having a terrific week. Let me tell you something. It is hard to raise adults. That's right. I said raise adults. We have three kids. Two of them are young adults. One of them is a senior in high school, almost a young adult. It's It's this weird back and forth. And after the week that I've had, I have decided to focus once again on St. Joseph because he always inspires me. In fact, we just celebrated the Feast of St. Teresa of Avila. And what I didn't realize about St. Teresa is that she was a big fan of St. Joseph. In fact, when she was a child, she was very sick and she prayed to St. Joseph, her loving father, and he came to her and healed her. She credits him for her healing. In fact, she had ailments throughout her lifetime, but she always turned to the strength of St. Joseph. And I think we can all relate to the need for having a strong figure or protector in our life at different periods, different moments in our life, like St. Joseph. My wife's favorite title for St. Joseph is Terror of Demons. I love that. Think about that. Think of all the awful things that we fear in this world, and to think that a powerful figure like St. Joseph is what they fear. I love that. You know what? I'm going to leave you a list of the titles for St. Joseph in the show notes, okay? And I want you to look at that list this week and just think about the one title of St. Joseph that really speaks to you. Who is our spiritual father to you? Check out the titles in our show notes. And as we remember him in these final weeks of the year of St. Joseph, let's just remember to appreciate the strength that he offers us and the various roles that he plays in our life. Now, let's get to work. Last week, we had a terrific show on the diaconate program in the Diocese of Allentown. I'm so grateful to my brother candidates and our formation directors for being a part of that panel. And one of the candidates who was on that panel is Vaughn George, and he works for St. Peter's Healthcare System. And this week, he introduced me to Jim Choma. Jim is the Vice President for Catholic Mission and the Chief Development Officer for St. Peter's Healthcare System in the Diocese of Metuchen in New Jersey. And we had a fabulous conversation about how St. Peter's navigated its way through the pandemic. And just wait till you hear the stories and the levels of of support and the ways people just came out and and showed their support and demonstrated uh, their generosity uh, to those who were not only in the hospital, but those who were working for the hospital. It's just a great story. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Jim Choma this week. And so without further ado, here's our conversation. Uh, we are blessed to have Jim Choma, who's the Vice President for Catholic Mission and the Chief Development Officer for the St. Peter's Healthcare System in the Diocese of Metuchen. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much, Jim. I look forward to being with you today and with your audience. So so grateful to have you here, Jim. Um, I'm just going to read a brief bio on Jim, and then uh, we'll get into our, our conversation. So Jim joined St. Peter's Healthcare System in September 2011 as the Chief Development Officer. His primary responsibilities include working with system boards and senior administration to create a plan to increase major gifts, oversee feasibility studies, and launch a capital campaign. His primary charge is to plan and execute an integrated annual giving program that builds a major gift prospect pool and creates a culture of philanthropy. In 2019, Jim assumed additional responsibilities as VP for Catholic Mission. Before coming to St. Peter's, Jim served as Morris Habitat for Humanities Director of Development since 2009. Prior to this engagement, Jim's diversified work experience in the nonprofit sector was in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Newark. Assignments were Director of Seton Hall University's International Institute for Clergy Formation, Executive Director of Development, Secretary to the Archbishop, Vocations Director, Executive Director of the Catholic Youth Organization, CYO. Jim's non-for-profit marketing experience and commitment to Catholic charities are welcomed attributes for the advancement of St. Peter's healthcare system. Uh, Jim's a graduate of St. Peter's College, has a master's from Seton Hall University and Crichton University, a certification in non-for-profit estate planning from the College of William and Mary and a certification in bioethics from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Well, welcome, Jim. So glad to have you again. Uh, so, uh, needless to say, an expert in your field. And uh, you know, 
Uh, Catholic health care is not something that we've touched too much on our podcast, so I'm really pleased to have uh, yourself here today and, and your and your wonderful background to kind of guide this conversation. So, Jim, you know, we've all been we've talked a lot about on our show with different professionals in different areas of the Catholic space about how we've adapted, you know, to healthcare or to to the pandemic, I should say. Uh, but we really haven't spoken to anybody in the healthcare field, so that's I'm really excited to get into our conversation today about how it's impacted you as a Catholic healthcare system. So. Yeah, at the height of the pandemic over the last year, how did St. Peter's Healthcare adapt to meet the needs of the community? And, and what were the pressing needs that you were encountering from your chair? That's a good question, Jim. And uh, if I can just give a little background before answering it, because yeah. when the peak of the uh, pandemic struck, and uh, especially like uh, March, April of uh, 2020, uh, it was like a war, a war zone in the hospital. Okay. You know, we shut down where people could not come into the hospital to visit patients. Everybody was in, we had a command center to deal with needs. We had doctors and nurses, you know, who rightfully are concerned in the pandemic for themselves and their own family on the front lines, uh, caring for COVID patients. And in the beginning, there was a learning curve on what worked best and what didn't work best. And, and um, you know, uh, the community who was fearful um, and then showing up at our emergency department doors in record numbers and other people who needed health care, um, you know, health care attention. But, um, you know, they were afraid to come into a hospital where there were many COVID patients. So it was really surreal. So now you can imagine the community, you know, how did we respond to them? Well, as a Catholic healthcare institution, we work as a team and our pastoral care department who has numerous chaplains, Catholic, Protestant, and other denominations, they really worked with our team and they began making telephone call calls to the family members because they couldn't always, the family members could not get through to the doctors all the time because they were in emergency mode. The doctors and nurses did make calls and respond, but not on demand. So the pastoral care uh, team stepped up, they made phone calls, they ministered to the people online, you know, on the phone, uh, served as an intermediary where you know, where they could get some information without breaking HIPAA compliance and allowing the doctors to deal with the, uh, you know, the appropriate family members. And they were able to keep the peace until, you know, the doctors could um, respond to the family members. Mm -hmm. Um, Another, I shared with you that patients who did not have COVID were afraid to come into the hospital. Mm -hmm. So our telemedicine really took off where we, you know, where we tried to respond to people's needs. Um, And um, there's a, what we noticed also, Jim, was that, you know, um, St. Peter's is a Catholic institution and we really pride ourselves and honor ourselves on caring for the underserved. Hmm. And, um, and we have a large population in New Brunswick and surrounding areas. And we noticed that many of the COVID patients were coming from those communities. So what we did was we worked with local parishes, we worked with different community leaders. We joined in partnership with our competitor hospital down the road. And what we did was we created care packages. And in those care packages, Um, And I'll share with you how this came about, because it's really unbelievable on how we're responding to the community and the love and the outpouring of the community that helped us to serve them better, which I'll get to later on. But in the care packages were things that we take for granted, especially when things were flying off the shelves like soap, hand sanitizers, uh, masks fabric masks, surgical masks, 
and instructions in English and in Spanish on proper social distancing, hot hand hygiene, uh, masking, especially indoors and being less than um, you know six feet from another person, um, and also encouraging family members when they discover um, symptoms of COVID to come to the emergency room. Don't wait, you know. Uh, and so we responded to the community, you know, uh, and uh, it was um, a, a big effort, but a rewarding way of taking care of the community in a time of need and fear. You know, um, you touched on so many great, great things there, Jim, and and, um, and congratulations and thank you for all of your service. I would imagine that as the director of Catholic Mission, when families couldn't, you know, reach the patients and you and you guys are making those calls from a Catholic mission perspective, those calls are, are made in a different way. They're, they're more about pastoral care than just touching base with the families and say, okay, your, your loved one is okay, or they're not okay. And here's the situation. But um, I, I would imagine that there's a there's an opportunity to minister to their needs, to pray with them, to be with them. Did you get a, the opportunity to make some of those calls, or what were some of those calls like when when you made them? I personally did not make the calls. It mm-hmm. was all directed by our um, chaplains. Yeah, you know, but they did report to me. You know, because yeah. I've had other responsibilities in that command center. Sure. Uh, so, but they did share. You know, because. People are upset and not knowing brings about fear. Mm -hmm. And you hit the nail on the head. Most of the time, you know, um, you know, the chaplains would say to them, uh, would you like to just take a moment and pray? Because we're not in this by ourselves. God is with us. And you have the best doctors and nurses, you know, attending to your family member. And I can't promise you outcomes but I can promise you that God is with us and with your loved one and will help us get through this together. And then they would begin praying with them and then they would start opening up and, you know, sharing. And so there was like a healing type of uh, ministry going on with uh, every person that was contacted. That's, that's tremendous. I mean, you, you define one of my questions down the road, as you know, is you know just to talk a little bit about the difference between a Catholic healthcare system versus a private healthcare system, and and certainly no disrespect to the wonderful hospitals that are out there that are private healthcare systems, but or public systems, uh, but your but the Catholic identity of the place must have really shined through uh, throughout it, and you talk a little bit about serving the uh, the underserved population of your community and. Um, and there's certainly an opportunity for evangelization there as well, even in this kind of crisis, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what distinguishes us as a Catholic institution is we're driven by the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, guidelines based upon theological and moral principles that really drive Catholic healthcare in a very changing world, you know, not only in the secular society, but a changing world within the church, you know, realm, you know, but there are constant moral principles that are not, that never change. I -hmm. mean, and these uh, principles come back and connect us to the healing ministry of Jesus Christ over 2000 years ago. And what's the animating principle? Love. And when we can serve our patients, body, mind, and soul with a loving heart, healing happens on levels that secular institutions have no idea. And they wonder why things are different and the culture is different at St. Peter's, you know, and it's because of that. And we told them that they would say we're crazy, but that's what's driving us. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, you, you hear this in different Catholic institutions, whether it's a Catholic school or a Catholic hospital, but there's something in the air. There's just something in the culture that is uh, that that is our Catholic identity that sets us apart, for sure. Um, 
So kind of putting on, you know, switching hats here for, for a moment, how did uh, fundraising adapt during the height of the pandemic? I'm sure you were busy. Yeah. And it came in many different ways. And, uh, and this is where the community really engaged. I mean, right. you talk about us offering loving healthcare service, the community at large spread forth love and responded in ways that we never dreamt possible. Uh, I, I do have some stat- st- uh, statistics to share with you and sure. I'll answer your question about fundraising, but more so I think some stories would be good on, on how it happened. Well, social media took off because everybody was locked in, you know, uh, and, uh, Children weren't going to school. College classes were canceled or was uh, gravitating towards online uh, courses. Um, you know, uh, everybody was home and they they were hearing about not only our healthcare workers, but healthcare workers across the board who were true heroes and are true heroes even now in the pandemic. Um, And so what happened was that on social media, people were saying, how can we help? Well, one of our uh, early on, uh, a crippling blow to us was the shortage of PPE, which is personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, especially when you're working in infectious disease environments, you know, uh, K, uh, I'm sorry, N95 masks, which are essential. Even because con- we all had to go to inside the hospital wearing surgical masks, uh, no matter where you were, you know, on non-COVID um, floors, when you're in the hospital, everyone had to be in surgical masks. And then if you're working with COVID patients and are on COVID floors, you have to wear N95 masks. There was a shortage. Everybody in the world needed them. You know, it wasn't just New Jersey or the United States or uh, North America. The entire world needed them. And there were shortages. Um, So when we look when it looked like we and this is how things uh, was like a snowball of good that just happened. When it looked like we wouldn't have basic uh, uh, surgical masks. Um, you know, some of the staff's family members, including my wife, uh, started um, a, a social media blitz to get people to volunteer uh, sewing uh, fabric masks uh, and, um, you know, and coordinating this thing of people sewing fabric masks. And, uh, and, and then we had a team that ran around and picked up the donations that they couldn't drop it off to the hospital. Thank God that uh, our CEO and our, our um, supply chain person was able to secure the purchase of a million surgical masks. You know, but I think what used to cost 20 cents was now costing a dollar and 10 cents per mask. I mean, it was just do the math and you can see you know, but we had to do it. But now we had all of these fabric masks, you know, so, um, so what we started to do is to give some of them to our nurses and doctors and those working with, um, you know, serving and supporting the, um, you know, the patients, you know, um, we gave them masks to take home, you know, so that they, because they could be worn and washed, you know. So now people felt good that these fabric masks were helping, you know, uh, the staff, the, the communities giving to the, to the hospital staff. Now what happens is that not every COVID patient is admitted. Some are sent, sent home to uh, quarantine unless they get bad and then they come back and they're hospitalized. So there was a need for patient discharge kits. So we put out a quest, we needed soap, we needed hand sanitizers and we needed PPE, you know, uh, you know, not thinking that people can come through with PPE first, but we put everything out there. Mm-hmm. There was an avalanche 
of uh, response and people showing up at the hospital front door in the emergency room, dropping off supplies and everything. Then we had the people that we um, redeployed from different areas that were not clinical to put together patient discharge kits that included, like I shared, what we sent to the people in the community, but also when they were discharged from the emergency department, you know, a, a care package with the instructions on what to do. And, and they had fabric masks that could be washed. They had surgical masks that could be one-time use, you know, about five surgical masks, two fabric masks, hand sanitizers, soap, instructions. Um, and so, and then that gravitated to where so much was coming in. Now we started making care packages for the underserved communities. And we have a family clinic um, in New Brunswick that deals with pediatric clinic, adult clinic, women's clinic, clinic and, and the people that we were giving them care packages because these were the poor and underserved and we were giving them supplies. And this just kept going on and on and on. And then, you know, like we were always running for photo ops. And now I, my office is in the hospital, so I, I'm the sole person who had to coordinate this. My staff and the foundation were working from home, but they were coordinating everything and setting me up to go get the, um, the donations. Sometimes I'd have nurses come down with me for photo ops, the CEO, chief medical officer, you know, uh, you know, so that we can take photos and promote this. And you'd see cases I'll give you one example, you know, well, there's a lot of examples, but a high school young man realized that there was a need for surgical masks. Most of the uh, masks come from China uh, and we couldn't get them. He did a collection among his family and friends, raised $5,000, wow. sent, sent it to his mother, uh, I'm sorry, his grandmother in Thailand, who placed the order with China got $5,000 of surgical masks, had her ship it to him, and he, and he came to deliver. Wow. And there were cases of surgical masks that this young man coordinated. Wow. Another high school person, a, a young lady, she did a collection among her family and friends and students and raised money for iPads. And she donated like, I think it was like seven or eight iPads to us and seven or eight iPads to another hospital. And, you know, iPads are expensive. Yeah. Uh, and we had our technology people set it up so that people in COVID rooms who could speak and were conscious could communicate with their loved ones at home, connecting them. And we also purchased iPads, but people were donating iPads. Food was coming in from restaurants and people paying restaurants to deliver foods. There were so many that were trying to record to thank, thank people, but then people were just dropping things off and not even taking credit for it. And there were food, beverages, uh, chocolates, cookies, sweets, uh, energy drinks, protein bars. There had to be on our records in the foundation where we acknowledge, uh, acknowledge it, it was, I think it was like 310 sub, uh, 310,000 donations. But like that one kid, you know, um, who delivered um, 5,000 masks, that's one donation. We had 310,000. And then there were so many things dropped off that we had, we didn't know who to acknowledge. So I would not, think that I'm exaggerating, it could have been 400,000 um, donations coming to St. Peter's. The community saying, we love you, thank you for what you're doing. And because we are so culture-centered and we have a great community outreach program run by Tab Kohunta, you know, who's been here for over 30 years, uh, you know, every single Christian denomination Jehovah Witnesses, uh, Jewish communities, uh, Asian cultures, South Asian cultures. Uh, I, I there was even like uh, the Buddhist. Um, 
I think it's called like the Buddhist Lighthouse Association Chart of New Jersey, uh, donating masks. I mean, uh, senior citizens sitting at home calling up my wife saying, can you please pick up the mask that I do? So senior citizens who are 80, 90 years old, making a difference for the community. You know, uh, it was just beautiful. I'll never forget. It was the toughest time. And then I had the honor to round on the COVID floors, bringing these supplies and gifts to the doctors and nurses and support staff and throughout the whole hospital, you know, but it, and I would, and there I would pray with the staff and thank them for what they're doing. And, and it was just a beautiful that you can find the love of Christ in hell, you know, because it was a war zone, a hell zone, you know. Sure it was, yeah. And the love that just penetrated and gave the workers, you know, uh, a sense of, wow, you know, I'm not here by myself and people appreciate it. I I would imagine, that's just tremendous, Jim. I, I would imagine that helped to overcome a lot of the fear because there was just so much fear that we all felt, I think, especially during those first months about going outside and touching things. I mean, we still, there's still a healthy amount of that now, but it sounds like from what you're describing, the amount of love that was, that was outpouring was kind of overcoming the, the fear that was out there in the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. How about uh, on the, I mean, you, you've really talked a lot about the philanthropic and the community engagement side, which is just off the scale. Um, how about some of the philanthropy, some of the donations, any, anything extraordinary that pops out? Now I'm going to compare 2019 pre-COVID yeah. to, to the 2020, uh, we're still in the pandemic now in 2021, but what happened last year during the right. peak in that first year of the run, overall donations increased by 94%. Whoa. <laughs> first time donors increased by 466%. Oh my goodness. Online donors, because now we went more to online. We've always were involved in it, but now we were forced to get involved in it. And uh, 533% increase on online donors. Uh, Total online donations increased by 232%. Gifts made online uh, went up from 5% to 11%, which is a 120% increase in online donations. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had corporations and foundations who gave us uh, donations. Like I think in that first year um, from a few businesses, we received um, like, I think it was well over $300,000. And 125,000 was um, restricted and designated for us to establish a COVID um, relief center. Um, And that center, what do I mean by that? Once people are released from the hospital or sent out, there's side effects of COVID. Right. And they need attention for follow-up because they can get very ill if they don't follow up. And many times when they leave, they don't get the uh, medical attention that they need. So this center, COVID um, Recovery, I'm sorry, COVID Recovery Center, reaches out to all the patients to see if they need help, to give them telemedicine, to bring them in if they need to be seen in our family clinic or in the hospital if it's serious. So it's that outreach. And we are continuing that COVID uh, recovery center and more people are donating to it. And we have some big plans coming up. It's not public yet, but uh, I understand and we're gonna be ready to roll next week and rolling that out on a different level. You know, those are like some things that are happening because of donations. Uh, And, you know, everything that I'm sharing, it doesn't reflect the in-kind gifts value. You know, like I I'll give you two examples of in kind because I can go on for <laughs> you're doing great. <laughs> um, a yacht company was out of work because they just shut down, but their right. workers still wanted to to do something. 
So they asked us, would they want us to make intubation boxes out of plexiglass? And they researched it and got all the medical approvals and showed the documentations on how they would build it. And uh, for those who are not familiar, you know, when someone has to be put on a respirator, they call that, I guess, intubation. And I'm not a, a doctor, so maybe a medical person out there can correct me. But my understanding is that when they put the tubes down, there's a reaction where they yeah. cough up aerospray. And when you're doing that with COVID patients, the chances of doctors becoming infected, even though they ha- are in protective wear with goggles and um, N95 masks, it's high risk when you're in that situation. Sure. And so uh, these plexi, uh, gl- uh, plexiglass boxes allow the doctor to do what he has to do, but it per- it's, you put it over the patient's head and it protects them from any aerosol that may be sprayed into the air. And so this yacht company is making these boxes for all of our respiratory doctors who are doing in- intubations. Uh, so that's one example. Now, you're not going to read about this or hear about money for plexiglass that's worth a million dollars a piece to us. Yeah, you know? sure. Uh, and then uh, so that was one example. Another example was a company, a chemical company, uh, when he found out that there was hand sanitizer shortage. He got permission from the FDA with a certain way of making liquid hand sanitizer. And um, he put 10 gallon containers and delivered like 16 10 gallon containers and delivered them to St. Peter's. And he's been going around to hospitals, giving it to all hospitals. You know, so again, the community saying there's a need, we're here with you. Here's our donation. Just keep saving lives and protect yourself in the process. Amazing. The examples you're offering are just off the charts, Jim. I, I'm wondering how, um, how did your, I'm sure you talk with other folks or other, uh, other folks in your position around the community and maybe in other hospitals just through a professional network. How did your experience compare with their experiences or, or have you heard a lot from other folks? We have. Um, it's like now that we're hearing about it, but yeah. in, in the heat of it, we didn't yeah. hear from others. I mean, oh, yeah, except, no when idea, we, sure. except when we were partnering to address community needs, you know, uh, with the care packages and then yeah. the vaccinations, you know, uh, you know, um, where we, we work together to try to canvass and, and help a whole community. So, um, you know, but yeah, they, they were similar. You know, but I'm prejudiced. I think it's, it's more special at St. Peter's yeah. you know, because of our culture. In other yeah. places, it's like a job. You know, right. here it's a passion. And, uh, you know, our people, rather than getting burnt out, although they did get, you know, there were times where they were pushed to the limit. But they they get energized more than they get burnt out by trying to help people. I mean, it it really is special at St. Peter's. And I'm not just saying that even other nurses who come from other hospitals uh, for per diem work say that they rather work at St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, I'm sure that's true. Do you think, um, are there, are there lessons learned or perhaps are there things that you think that you guys have learned during the pandemic that are going to carry forward? I mean, I think that's probably true in just about every industry, but I think of the telehealth and the ways in which doctors and and nurses are able to care for folks now remotely. But are there other areas of your of your shop that you think, you know, we 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 turned the dial now. We're going to keep going forward in this direction. Yeah, there's many disciplines throughout a healthcare system. Yeah, and uh, and I'm sure that in each discipline they have their own benefit of learning through being it. I I can't speak for them. I can yeah, only sure. speak from, from the development perspective. Yeah. But from a but from a Catholic mission perspective, I think everybody realized, even though they always knew about our connection to a higher power, yeah. you know, um, and that 
is what makes us who we are. I think that really came home and they drew upon that strength. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, um, the power of prayer, the chaplains, you know, were phenomenal, not only ministering to family members and patients when they could, and uh, they ministered to the staff. And that oneness of like seeing the Holy Spirit come alive, you know, in our healthcare mission, rooting us in the healing ministry of Christ, mm-hmm. which is built upon the animating principle of love. And that right. love came shining through. I would imagine the community partnerships, you've talked a lot about different partnerships that you formed that were brand new during the pandemic. And um, but how how are you, now that we're kind of moving, we're, we're hopefully on the other side of this, or, or certainly life has, be, has started to come back to normal. How are you thinking about ongoing health now and, and how will that impact future philanthropy? I think right now, uh, and again, we also have a staff member uh, in the foundation who's very talented with social media and yeah. internet. I think we really came into our own with online giving. Yeah. You know, so I think that's going to continue. You know, dinosaurs like me, you know, we like to get something in the mail and then we write a check. Younger people like check. Uh, you know, mail too yeah, much time. Venmo me or they, whatever. Yeah, yeah, they go onto their computer. I, I believe in your mission. Thanks for out there. Here's a donation. Boom. Yeah. You know, God. So I mean, like, uh, so <laughs> I think we're, we made it into the modern world, and the pandemic helped us to get there from uh, from a fundraising perspective. Uh, we are also um, realizing that by working with others, you know we can accomplish more. But in the foreseeable near future, what we're doing is we shared with you that, um, you know, outreach to the underserved, the underserved is very important. Well, our family clinic in New Brunswick on Howe Lane, we see, I believe, 50 to 60,000 people, um, you know, a year there. Uh, We could see more if we had, um, you know, if we had the space. Well, plans are right now is to double the size of the examination rooms there. And wow. we, like I, we have, and I think that it'll be like 27 or 28 new um, exam rooms. And in that clinic, we have a, a children's clinic, an adult clinic, a women's clinic. In addition to there, we have a child protection center. And we also have a Four Keeps program. Four Keeps is um, for children who can't get along in school because of certain issues, physical, psychological, who may need to be institutionalized, but they send them to four keeps to help them regulate them and get them back into the home and school system rather than being institutionalized. So uh, all of that's going on in our family clinic, that's gonna double now. Mm. And we're gonna be serving even more people who need St. Peter's um, assistance. And what makes us different than other clinics, because this family center is connected to our hospital, many clinics do not have the subspecialty doctors available to them in clinics. Our subspecialty doctors go down to the clinics. They get the full service. They're not second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they receive the best healthcare possible. And uh, the more money that we can raise, you know, the more underserved people we can care for and love. Tremendous, tremendous. You know, vaccinations have been such a huge topic in the media. Are you seeing, are you, are you all seeing a turn in the number of people that are vaccinated and, um, and, and kind of ending some of those misconceptions that we've seen about vaccinations? And I'm, and have you had to have some of those kind of conversations with donors or? Uh, yes. And, and even with employees, you know, <laughs> so, so it's very confusing, Jim, let's yeah. face it. Uh, it's politicized, you know, yeah. and there's so much miscommunication out there. And then there's certain legitimate things that we need to be aware of. And so let, 
So this is where marketing sent over some information. So, <laughs> That's good. so if I if, if they see this program and I don't share the information with you, then uh, I may not have a job uh, <laughs> tomorrow. So we'll let that happen. Uh, but it's true. St. Peter's, uh, since vac- uh, vaccines have become available, we have administered more than 31,000 first and second dose vaccines to the community, over 31,000. And to our employees, physicians, and community, especially to those most vulnerable. We, even with our community health van, went into the underserved areas and vaccinated people. You know, so if people don't come to us, we're going to go to them. If they want it, they got it. And, you know, so we're doing everything. And I consider St. Peter's to be a leader, you know, in the community when it comes to vac- uh, vaccines. We are also um, a leader in maternal health, and we have been doing a good job of encouraging those who are pregnant or want to become pregnant, you know, in the future to get vaccinated because there's a now again, I am not a doctor. So anyone who's listening, you know, you have to do your own research, but I'm only going by our a head of infectious uh, control for COVID at St. Peter's and all the research of our infectious disease teams are saying, the risks are minimal. And I'm saying that because you take an aspirin, there's a risk. Right. But I mean, there's nothing that should prevent pregnant women and and pregnant, it will help pregnant women and their um, child-to-be will get some immunity. Uh, you know, if they're pregnant. Um, and we've seen, you know, that pregnant women that don't get vaccinated coming down with COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and it's sad. Uh, and I know there's a lot of information out there. And, um, you know, and some of it is not true, you know, and people are taking it as gospel truth, you know, but there's nothing that prevents from my understanding with our professionals to prevent women from getting vaccinated uh, who are uh, who are pregnant or want to be pregnant. Um, you know, and we are leading that charge and, but it's voluntary. You can't force people to get vaccinated. It's a service that we offer, but what I can share with you is that 99% of the people who are in our hospital now with COVID are unvaccinated. Wow. And that doesn't mean that those who were vaccinated are not in our hospital. You know, there's obviously a a fraction uh, or don't come in and come home for home quarantine. But the the negative impact isn't as severe with those who are vaccinated. So vaccination is something that we encourage our own Holy Father. You know, Pope Francis was vaccinated. He opened up the papal audience hall, uh, I think in the spring, and turned it into a vaccination, um, you know, uh, clinic for the underserved in Rome. Um, So it's not unethical, but this is something that I would like to take the opportunity to share because there's a lot of things, should it be mandated, you know, um, and are we violating people's rights? Well, this is where Catholic um, tradition and um, you know moral mor- uh, morality uh, teaching comes into play. The church encourages vaccination. The majority of bishops around the world encourage it. But vaccines, even problematic vaccines, that may have connections to fetal stem cells can be morally taken for the greater common good. However, it has to be voluntary. It cannot be uh, required, mandated, uh, but it neither, but nor is it prohibited. So the person has to discern for themselves in their conscience that they will receive it for the common greater good to keep themselves healthy, their family and the community. Now, with healthcare workers, it 
it elevates the need to be vaccinated for COVID because we're working in an environment with non-COVID patients who are vulnerable. And if my right to not be vaccinated and I come down with it and it takes days to reveal itself and I pass it on to a nurse who passes it on to a non-COVID patient who dies, I'm guilty. Right. I don't like putting, you know, anything in my body that I don't have to. But if I want to work in a healthcare system, I discern that this is something that I have to do. And if I can't bring myself to do it, maybe I should leave healthcare ministry and go to another position. But it's an individual choice. Nobody should be forced. So we instituted uh, a policy for vaccination for St. Peter's employees. Now, People want to know, are you making it mandatory? No, we're not making it, but we are saying it's required. We want all healthcare uh, employees to get vaccinated, regardless of your personal beliefs, for the common greater good in a healthcare environment. But in conscience, if a person says, for whatever reason, I cannot bring myself to be vaccinated in conscience, because there's no religious exemption for vaccines. There's a conscious exemption because you can't be forced. It has to be voluntary. Mm-hmm. So if a per- so what we did was we, re- we came up with a policy. It's required. And we strongly encourage and recommend we went through educations, town hall meetings, and over and over, uh, frequently asked questions we developed. Uh, we shared the policy. And so, and we want our employees to be vaccinated, but, but we give them the opportunity to petition for an exemption for medical or religious, um, you know, religious um, conscious. Um, reasons. Sure. Why am I saying religious? Because I just said there is no uh, religious uh, exemption in the Catholic Church. In other churches, there are religious exemptions. So mm-hmm. we re- and we respect everybody. So and then exemptions are granted, but then they have to agree that if they are not going to be vaccinated, they have to agree to be tested weekly, which we pick up the expense of the testing. And uh, and as long as they remain, you know, uh, COVID free, they continue working with all the appropriate PPE for their whatever requirements are, you know, and down the road, if things change, there may be other restrictions put on, you know, um, you know, on people who are not vaccinated if it develops. But for the most part, a person is respected as an individual for their autonomy. You know, uh, we encourage them to be vaccinated, but we will not mandate it. Mm -hmm. Um, And right now, I think we are at 92% of our employees are vaccinated and uh, fully vaccinated. And I think those who have received their first dose after, um, you know, the first dose after Mm -hmm. our policy was enacted, I think like 95% will be vaccinated and the others will have, um, you know, exemption status uh, with the understanding that they will comply with the policy. Uh, Those who do not get vaccinated, those who do not um, petition for exemption, those who do not agree to be tested, then they terminated themselves. We did not terminate them, but thank God is very few, if any, in our policy, you know, is like um, playing itself out right now. Um, And, you know, I hate to just keep speaking, but if I have time, St. Peter's, you know, um, uses the National Catholic Bioethics Center as our main source of guidance for all of these issues that are so, um, you know, important and, and when you strip the layers down and you get down, it's so complicated and gray matters, you know, it's important to have a source that you can uh, have as a resource. And here at St. Peter's, 
we're happy to have um, the um, president emeritus, uh, Dr. John Haas, you know, as our point of contact as a consultant. And, uh, and he has been uh, life-giving to us through all of this. Uh, and also when we were working on the definitive agreement, you know, and the Catholic identity agreement for any type of affiliation with an outside source, it was so great and is great to us. So it's important that we have people to kick these things off because it's very complicated, you know, yes. but we're doing what's best and we want to remain authentic and Catholic. And our bishop is on the National Bio, uh, Bio uh, the National Catholic Bioethics Center's board, so I think we have a good source giving us guidance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's so much misconception out there. It does feel as though that the the tide is turning a little bit in, in public sentiment and education and everything you've said uh, over the last few minutes on just continuing to help people understand and educate them on on the, um, the the validity of it the uh, the safeness of it and and how it's it's helping helping all of us another thing to help catholics and non-catholics cuz i believe everyone has an ethical uh, core you know when you make the from a catholic perspective right you know anything connected to abortion you know it's problematic for us mm -hmm. because we believe in the dignity of human life from the moment of conception to natural death. Yep. And that guides every decision. So companies who uh, make vaccines and use uh, fetal stem cells in, in the design, in the, uh, and in the uh, manufacturing and testing, that's a problem for us. Right. So many good Catholics say, I'm not taking any vaccine. So, but we have to understand what's happening with the COVID vaccines. There are three basic ones. There's Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson or Janssen, whichever, you know, there's a hierarchical level, a hierarchy of the being problematic. Pfizer and Moderna did not use stem cell material in the manufacturing, in the design, it didn't. So there's really no connection. There's a remote connection because they use this HEC stem cell, I think, what is it, HEC 293 or something? I always get the numbers wrong. But uh, that goes back to fetal material from an abortion back in 1973 from the Netherlands. So they have this line that just keeps it and they use it for testing. Mm -hmm. So Moderna and Pfizer didn't use fetal stem cells in the manufacturing or design of their, um, it's, it's no connection, but they did use it to test it. Mm -hmm. And that's a remote connection, which is problematic. Sure. Janssen, Johnson, Johnson, used it in all three stages, which is severely problematic, right. you know, which is in the design, manufacturing, and testing. So Catholics who have a choice can receive Pfizer or Moderna over Johnson & Johnson. But in a pandemic, even a problematic Johnson & Johnson is acceptable. But all of them are problematic because there is some, um, you know, a connection to stem cells from abortions, fetal abortions. So if a Catholic is going to receive any of them, even though two are remote and one is full, you know, fledged in, in the problematic uh, formula, we, I wrote to the pharmaceutical companies. And I thank Moderna, who I took, and I said, thank you for producing this vaccine, but it's still problematic because you use the hex stem cell and it goes against my um, religious beliefs and it's problematic. And there's a lot of other people who are not being vaccinated because of that connection. Could you please, since you're so close, you know, to not using any stem cells from abortions, test in another way without the connection, you know? So as Catholics, we can protest and still receive. 
in good mm-hmm. conscience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm waiting for the day when a company, because I think one is like close to being approved, that has no connection. And then that would be the one that everyone should want to receive if it's available. Mm-hmm. Okay, Absolutely. I'm just about tongue tied. <laughs> I didn't know I would speak this much. <laughs> well, it, it, it's obviously a, a topic that you're passionate about and one that um, we all need more education on, Jim. So I appreciate that. It, speaking of um, speaking of, of, of life and, uh, and, and pro-life, uh, congratulations on being the best children's hospital by U.S. World News and Report on neonatology for the third year in a row. Um, what do you attribute to that accomplishment? Uh, and it goes right back. And, uh, and this is like the paradigm of the heart, you know, like it's all about the culture. Mm-hmm. It's all about the culture. Our staff in the NICU, they are phenomenal. <laughs> like we have a nurse. I, I wrote this down. Hold on. How long was she there? We have a nurse who was there, I think, 46 years. Then we, uh, that was like in the mid seventies. Then we have a number of nurses that are still working there from the late seventies, eighties, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the longevity and the doctors, you know, and they're committed to um, excellence. Uh, And when they onboard new staff members, like when the nurses onboard a new nurse, Mm -hmm. they can tell in one week, whether they're going to make it a second week or not, because if they don't share the same passion that they have, they're out of there. They're done. Wow. And because everybody's involved and this, since they work so well together, like hand in glove, the doctors, the nurses, the clinicians for so long, you know, it's like best practice routine, just drills, just being done. They know what to do before anyone tells them what to do. And they, they feed off of each other. And, and the results, we're the only nationally ranked NICU in New Jersey. And we are nationally ranked, which we're very proud of. And we're very um, appreciative of our doctors and nurses. Kudos to them and their passion and, uh, and for what they accomplished. But another thing that um, they received for three consecutive times is a Beacon Award. Mm-hmm. You know, a Beacon Award signifies nursing uh, excellence in this type of environment. And uh, the prior two times they were silver, gold is almost like impossible to get. Uh, in 2020, they received the gold standard. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just the best. And I'll give you another story, you know, about this. And again, I'm not breaking HIPAA compliance. I'm not giving names. I'm not saying where from, but in an outside region, uh, a nurse who worked in uh, labor and delivery in a different hospital became pregnant. When it was, when she was diagnosed that there was going to be some complications, she switched to having OBGYN doctors from St. Peter's. She gave birth to twins and they were transferred to our NICU for three months. They are healthy babies, um, young, young, I'm sorry, uh, young children now. They're not babies anymore because this was a number of years ago. Healthy children, brother and sister, and a labor delivery nurse chose St. Peter's. That says it all. It does right there. Well, as, uh, as somebody who was in the delivery room for three babies with my, with my wife, I can see the, the difference that a, that a great team makes and people that are dedicated and not. We had, uh, we had a mixed bag with ours. And so what a, what a great gift you're giving to families. Tremendous. Jim, this has been a real education for me. And I'm sure for those who uh, were fortunate enough to listen to our podcast today, congratulations on all the success of St. Peter's and for yourself, your team and, and the whole system. And, and certainly, uh, Certainly a beautiful and shining example of, of Catholic social teaching and, and values in the Diocese of Metuchen. So thank you for today. And thank you for your ministry in bringing the Catholic mission alive to so many uh, listeners and those who desire to learn more about you know, our Catholic faith in the different areas. So thank you, Jim. Thank you. God bless.
I want to thank Jim Choma for being on our show this week. What a blessing St. Peter's Healthcare is to the community in the Diocese of Metuchen. Jim, thank you for sharing these incredible stories of generosity with us. I'll leave a link in the show notes to Jim and to St. Peter's, and for the full video presentation of this episode, please visit our show's homepage at advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team at Pottery Studios for their support of our show. If you'd like to help our show, please leave a rating wherever you download this podcast. I would really appreciate that. And for more information about our show, you can find us at advancingourchurch.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for more than two decades. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. I hope you have a terrific week. Make sure you read those titles of St. Joseph and reflect on them this week. I'll be really interested to get your feedback if you have some time. Take care, everybody. God bless. God bless.